Welcome to the teaching ministry of Rev. Daryl Baker, pastor of Christian Faith Fellowship. Pastor Baker is fulfilling the call of God on his life to preach the Word of God without compromise. Raising up disciples who through faith in God will have a powerful impact on our world. May you be blessed through the message that Pastor Baker has to share with you today. May God's very best be yours. John forward, just kind of getting into this new series here of uh, true worshipers. What is a true worshiper? Why is the Father seeking true worshipers? And uh, what is this all about in relationship to me and you? So let's get back into it because I will promise you, based on what we recently finished, the series on how to be able to hear the voice of God and follow God's leading, this will go right in line with that to help you even more to be able to develop this relationship with God He wants you to have and to walk in what He has for your life. If God's seeking something in relationship to people, I want to be one of those He finds. I want to be one of those that He can recognize and acknowledge according to the Word of God as to what He's looking for. Amen? And I'm grateful that we can. Praise God. John chapter 4. So again, this story is about where Jesus... And his disciples had gone by this well at Sychar that Jacob had actually uh, dug. And in that time that he was there, he had sent the disciples into town to actually go get him some food. He was worried. He sits by the well. And here comes this lady to draw water as they customarily did to take to their homes and their families. And as she comes to draw this water, he begins to talk to her about this water he could give her of which would be a living water, everlasting life, that she would no longer have to draw. And she's really interested in that, thinking obviously still in the natural. But of course, we know he's talking in the spiritual. As he goes on in this conversation with her, I want you to see this in John 4 again, in verse 19. John 4, verse 19, she responds to Jesus about what he had revealed about the fact that she was not married, asking her to go get her husband, bring him there, and he would explain how to get this water. She says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Verse 20, she immediately shifts to this statement, Our fathers worshipped. Our fathers worshipped. I'm going to keep emphasizing (coughs) the significance here of what this worship is all about. Worship is not just singing a song. If you really want to think about relationship of worship and singing, worship is a way, excuse me, songs are a way you can express your worship. You listening? Worship is not a song. You, You can worship your, you know, you can worship your animals. You can worship your vehicle. You can worship your home. The Bible's clear about this. That's why Jesus said that in relationship to Satan and the temptation in the garden, remember Luke 4? He said, if you'll bow down and worship me, Satan said. Well, he wasn't saying bow down and sing a song. So worship is far more than a song sung. When we worship God, yes, we can express it through an act of us singing to God and should. But that's not the heart of what true worship's about. So she said here, our fathers, verse 20, worshiped on this mountain. This is where they honored God. This is where they, in other words, bowed down to God. Notice, and you Jews say that it's in Jerusalem, the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Because it's not about the location. 
This is, this is in essence saying there's coming a time, an hour, in which now you will finally be able to worship the Father in the way that he wants you to worship him. Notice this, he went on to say in verse 18, excuse me, verse, sorry, verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation of the Jews. Now, it's important to understand that statement because this is a part of the whole heart of what he's about to get into in talking about a true worshiper. So you need to think about the Samaritans, first of all. He said, this is a Samaritan woman. And he said, clearly, he said, verse 22, you, you said, do not, he said, do not know, in essence, what you worship. Meaning what? To you, it's all about the place. So what are they really worshiping? The place. Do they know that it's about God? Yeah. It's not like they don't know it's about God. But to them, it's not true worship unless it's in a specific place. So he's telling the Samaritans, it's not about the place. And he goes on to say, the Jews know, notice this, he said, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So were they doing it properly? No, because in essence, they said you had to go to Jerusalem, once again, uh, acknowledging a specific place. You had to do it in the temple. Is the temple the only place you could worship God? No. No, you could worship him anywhere on the planet, praise God. But the Jews knew who they worshipped more so than the Samaritans because they believed the prophets of old that the Messiah would come to them through the very nation of the Jews. But I have a question for you. Did most of these Jews know that Jesus was the Son of God? They did not. If they were true worshipers, they would have known this was the Messiah. They would have acknowledged him as the Messiah. And sadly today, if you think, here's the simplest way to think about the Samaritans' worship and the Jews' worship. Okay? Did they know about God? Yes, yes they did. Did they truly know him? No. no, they didn't. And that's a problem a lot of Christians today. See, a true worshiper doesn't just know about God. A true worshiper knows God. Intimate relationship. Read on here as he goes on. He says in verse 23 again, the hour is coming. And then he says what? And now is. Why? He's here to make it possible for you and me to truly become again what is known as a true worshiper from the perspective of the individual. Not corporately as a body, but as an individual. As an individual, I can become a true worshiper because I can now do what? Become born again. I can now have brought back within me the very presence of God, all for the purpose of what? Getting to know God. What's it all about? Relationship. So it's not just, about, it's not just knowing about God, it's knowing God. So he, he clearly states here again, this hour is coming and now is, verse 23, when the true worshipers. Now every time I read that statement, it makes me think of this very truth. If there's true worshipers, there's also what? False worshipers. I don't believe most people born again intentionally are trying to be a false worshiper. I don't believe that. I believe there's a lot of false worshipers that don't even realize they are. You know how many Christians today, seriously, just in our community, because I run into this all the time, just in our community, to them, God is all about one thing, a Sunday morning church service. That's the majority of believers today. They don't even have Sunday nights. Most churches, why? Because it's all about a Sunday morning church service, which now really comes back to what? The Samaritans and the Jews. Because it's all about this one time at this one location on a Sunday morning of when I actually come, and I, I'm not just saying in our community, I'm it's, all, it's everywhere, but I notice it in our community talking to people, 
where I just come at this, because I've had people say, man, you guys got church Sunday night and Wednesday night? Come on, my goodness. I mean, we just go to church Sunday morning. Well, it's not, again, that you have to be in church to worship God. But what are you going to wind up serving? What you worship. Right? You're going to love wanting to spend time with anything to do with God. So in relationship to that Sunday morning time, to most Christians today, they're like the Samaritans and the Jews. Why? They know about God. They know enough about God to say, I'm going to find somewhere to go on a Sunday morning that my kids will like the kids' church. You know, we, we've seen studies from Barna. We did this ourselves years ago. You know, the average family, the average Christian family today that's looking for a church that has kids, 60 to 65% of them determine where they go to church based on the children's ministry. Now, that'd be the same as saying, you know what? We're going to determine where we eat the rest of our life based on where our kids want to eat. <laughs> Thank you, Tamara. <laughs> Because if you think about that, where are you going to be eating a lot at? McDonald's, Chuck E. Cheese. Are they still around? Chuck E. Cheese. Where else? I don't know. Where else do kids eat today? Taco Bell. Sorry. Sorry, kids. Goodness, like Taco Bell. Do what? Bueno. That's right. You're a bueno guy. There we go. Think about all the places that kids would want to eat to feed their bodies physically. How healthy would they be? How healthy would the family be? If all we're going to do is go eat where the kids want to go eat all the time. Not very healthy. Well, how spiritually healthy are people today determining where they go to church based on whether kids like the kids' church or not? Which, by the way, and we're all about doing what we can to help kids in kids' church, which, by the way, is not the responsibility of the church to raise them. It's the responsibility of the parents to raise them. Kids' church should be reaffirming what kids are already learning and knowing and watching with their parents. Can I get a better Amen. So understand that you got to know that this whole issue of true worship is significant to the day we live in. I believe this with all my heart based on Scripture. Guess who's going in the rapture? True worshipers. Yes. <clears throat> Why? They're ready. Their hearts are set on God. So therefore, they're what? They're not lukewarm. What happens to lukewarm believers according to Jesus' own words in the book of Revelation? I'll spew you out of my mouth when I come back. Imagine hearing the words... In relationship to Jesus coming, we're not talking about losing your salvation. We're talking about facing a time of tribulation that you could have got out of. Because again, the most souls that we see in the last days that will be one won't be in the time that you and I are here. It'll be during the first three and a half years of tribulation. There's a multitude it reveals in that time of tribulation that in the middle part of the three and a half years, uh, in the middle part of the, of the third, three and a half, third and a half year of the seven years, there's going to be a rapture of people up to the throne of God. The Bible says so. It says they come out of the great tribulation. And, it's, and the Bible calls it a sea, meaning the, the number so vast. When it uses that term referring to people, it's a lot of people, man. Well, guess what? There are going to be a lot of people born again during the tribulation period. Now, that don't mean I'm not trying to get people born again today. But again, I told you this on Sunday night. I'm going to remind you again tonight. I was going to bring some of those. I'm going to do this Sunday. I'm going to read some of those prophecies to you that go right along with Scripture from Hagen and Wigglesworth about the last days. The last day's great move of God before the rapture is in the church. Do you know why? Why do we need to move in the church amongst believers? Why do we need to move in the church? Excuse me? So we could be a glorious church, meaning what? A God-filled church. 
A God-filled church has their heart set on God and has close relationship with God. And therefore, guess what? They're wise virgins, not foolish. What happens to the foolish? Left behind. What happens to the wise? They leave the planet. Right? My job is twofold as a pastor. Really more than that, but I'm just talking about basics. There's, it definitely goes beyond this. But my job primarily is twofold. Help to do everything I can to equip you to go win souls. Because we're to continue to win souls while we're on the planet. And to help prepare you for the rapture. If I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do to challenge you, to li- this isn't you earning anything. This is you honestly walking in what you have a privilege to walk in that you did nothing to earn. But your heart is set on that. It would be like, in essence, again, if I had an opportunity to have a relationship with somebody, but I just chose not to have it. I don't have to do anything to earn it. They're offering that relationship. I just choose not to have it. Then guess what? I'm not going to be prepared in relationship to that aspect of God when he comes back of him taking me off the planet because I chose to ignore my relationship with him. So we're not earning anything. We got to be really careful that we don't fall into this mentality like, man, I got to earn my way into the rapture. No, you don't. <clears throat> you know how you get your way into the rapture? You love your way in. You love your way in. You know what you do? You love God. You love him more than anything else. And if you do, guess what you're going to be ready for? Guess what you're going to be ready for? I guarantee you're going to be ready for the rapture. Why? You're the wise virgins. What's a wise virgin as opposed to a foolish? A wise one knows this is about walking close with God because the door is now open to do so. A foolish virgin says, I just need a little Sunday morning service. And then here's what they do, because I see these postings all the time on our local Rants and Raves page. They go through their life until all of a sudden stuff starts falling apart. And then they start talking about God or hoping God could do something for them or hoping somehow God could change things. Because guess what they don't know? They don't know who they are. They don't know what they have, and they don't know how to walk in it. And they're just hoping somehow, maybe God, if I could just be good enough, be nice enough, be kind enough to other people or change about things in my life I know I need to change, maybe God would help me out. Let me help you. He's already helped you out. You're not going to earn anything from God. You're not going to prove yourself in any way worthy enough to receive anything from God. If you could, you could have earned your salvation. And this is where the loss of the balance comes in the body of Christ and teaching the difference between understanding what true grace is as opposed to hypergrace. True grace is, I don't earn anything from God. But I don't go to the degree to say that it doesn't matter how I live because literally whatever's going to happen is going to happen. No, you're going to reap what you sow, Galatians chapter 6. If I sow towards a relationship with God, how many know what I'm going to reap? Life, come on, and peace. Right? Because I'm sown to the things of the Spirit. I'm not earning anything. I'm just entering into what's already available. The door's already open. God's waiting for us to come sit down. It's like parents as they get older and talk about their kids never want to come see them. Never want to spend time with them. Never want to actually have anything to do with them anymore. Well, I guarantee you if the parents and the kids love each other, if you ask those parents, oh, my door's always open for them to come. But they just don't have time to come. You know what I mean? Do, do this with God the Father. And the door's open. Why did he die? Why did Jesus die? Why, why is he looking for true worshipers? He wants fellowship. He wants you to know him. Any good amens on that? 
So the hour is coming and now is. So because of what Jesus is about to do, he's about to make it possible for us to understand that we can enter back into relationship with God, intimate relationship with God, which is what a true worshiper will do. A true worshiper knows this is all about relationship with God. I'm going to say that again in case it went over your head the first time. A true worshiper knows this is all about relationship with God. <clears throat> this is not about me being some perfect little Christian, never making a mistake. This is not about me doing everything just right in the sight of God. This is not about me making sure I do things I got to do to please God so he'll obviously bless me, help me in some way. No, this is about knowing this is, my rela- this is all about my relationship with God. Can I get a better amen than that? <clears throat> so he says in verse 23 again, he said, but the hour's coming now is when the true worshipers will do what? Worship the Father. How? In spirit and truth. And notice this, for the Father is what? Seeking. He's seeking such to do what? Worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must do what? Worship him in spirit and truth. So again, the Father is seeking for such to do what? Worship. Say worship, to worship it. So what's worship mean in relationship to a true worshiper? Okay, I already gave you the definition. Here's the heart of true worship. It's one who adores someone. If we walk in true worship in, in relationship to God, guess what we do? We adore him. Guess what else we do? We magnify him. What do you mean? If I adore him, he's the most important thing in my life. If I adore him, I magnify him above everything else. Everything that is him, I exalt above everything else because guess what? I adore him. If I adore him above my car, if I adore him above my home, if I adore him above my business, my job, my family, guess who comes first? God does. My relationship with God. And that doesn't take away from what God can do in relationship to other people. No, it enhances it. Because the better you, better you learn to spend time with God, he rubs off on you. And he is love. <clears throat> Come on, somebody. So understand this. It's one who adores God. It's one who what? Magnifies God. And therefore, one who does what? It is one who loves him to the highest degree. What's loving him to the highest degree? You love him above everything else. You truly love him. You truly do love him. And if you love him, guess what? It's not something you just say. It has to be expressed. Love can't just be spoken. It has to be expressed. And when you express your love towards God, guess what God does? He responds in like manner and he loves you back. There's nobody better to have intimate relationship with in all of your life than God Almighty. There is nobody better. There's nobody better to be closer with. There's nobody better to be more intimate with than God the Father. And he wants that intimacy. I said he wants that intimacy. There's, a, there's an aspect of God why he does this. Why did he create us? You know, pastor talked about the fact that clearly if all he was going to do is just get you born again to go to heaven, then, why, then he would certainly wait till right before he knows everything. He would wait right before you were to leave the planet and then he gets you born again. But obviously if he got you born again before then, he has a purpose for you. Right? And pastor touched on the fact that he has a purpose to anoint you to be able to do the work of ministry. Amen? But this is all out of relationship with God. Go to Hosea 6. Turn quickly, please. Hosea 6. Now, I won't have time to go show you this reference in Matthew. I'll refer to it. I just want you to go to Hosea 6. I want you to see the direct verse itself in Hosea 6. I'll quote to you the uh, verse here. 
in uh, Matthew. It comes from Matthew chapter 9 in relationship to the Pharisees that Jesus was talking to in this context of Matthew 9 and in verse 13, Jesus said, go and learn what this means. How many think we ought to learn what it means? Yes. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Right. I desire mercy. Now he's quoting Hosea 6.6 6, where you're going. And that's why if you looked it up, you don't need to because I'm reading it to you. If you looked it up in Matthew 9 and in verse 13, if you looked it up, he states this and it's italicized. I've taught you this before. If something's italicized in the New Testament, it's italicized for one or two reasons. It's a quote from the Old Testament, or if it's just one word in a sentence, it wasn't in the original Greek language. It was added by English translators. But this is a whole statement, so it's quoted from the Old Testament. If you have any, uh, uh, like a uh, uh, center column reference Bible, and you look at Matthew 9, 13, you look at the center column there, of the little reference to that phrase that'll take you right to where you're going, Hosea 6, 6. So Jesus said, say Jesus said. Jesus said, go and learn. You go and learn. You go figure out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now notice this. He's tying this to being made right with God. He's tying Hosea 6.6 to being made right with God. How did the religious leaders of Jesus' day think they could get right with God? By upholding all of the law. In truth, could anybody get right with God upholding all the law? Let me help you. No. Abraham was considered righteous before the law was ever established. Did you know that? The Bible says it was accounted to Abraham as if he already had right standing with God. You couldn't until Jesus died and was raised from the dead to make you right on the inside. Right standing means I'm now back in a place of fellowship with God. My spirit has been made new. His presence is now living in me, which, by the way, is evidence that I'm now what? Right with God. When Adam sinned, he was no longer right with God. The presence of God had to leave him. The Shekinah glory that was on him had to leave him. That glory was on him to the degree, that's why they had no natural clothes, because you could, all you could see on them was the presence of God. So that presence left them. But thank God, Jesus made a way for that presence to come back to us. Adam and Eve were right with God. They sinned no longer right with God. And nobody from that time on could be right with God, only accounted righteous. So the New Testament tells us that Abraham was accounted righteousness. Why? Why was Abraham accounted righteous? Because of what he did? No. Because of what he believed. I said because of what he believed. He did, he did not get righteous with God because of what he did. What he did was a result of what he believed. Are you listening? When he believed God's promise to have a son through Sarah, and then when Isaac came along and he was willing to take him up on Mount Moriah, and offer him as a sacrifice to God, and God provided a ram for the sacrifice... How many people could honestly, going up on top of that hill, not knowing that God would, would uh, provide a sacrifice, have that kind of faith in God to know, God gave me this promised child, surely he's not going to just take him away. Say he believed as God. Because he believed as God, he was accounted as if he was righteous. So the law had nothing to do with making you righteous. But the Jews thought it did. 
The Jews thought that their right standing with God was based on them upholding all of the law. God never intended for there to be a law because God never wanted man to fall. That's right. Amen. The law, see, a lot of us don't understand the significance of the law as it relates to life, as it relates to what God had to do through the shedding of blood. I don't want to get into all those details tonight because that's not the focus. But the reason for the law and all these animal sacrifices is life's in the blood. And God had to have a way to atone. That's not remove. Atone means to cover. God could not have anything to do with you unless he could cover your sin. Why? He has no sin in him. Aren't you glad? There's nothing evil, wrong, or sinful about God. He's everything that's good. Why would you not want to have this God as your closest friend? In who everything there is that's good is in. So understand, the law had no way of making people righteous. But the Jews thought it did. If I'm going to get there tonight, I hope I will. You'll see Paul saying that he literally thought his way to right standing with God was upholding the law to the umpth degree. And so did all the rest of the Jews. So in fact, them trying to get right with God through the law, what were they worshiping? The law. They were worshiping the law. Not the God who gave it. They were worshiping the law. Because they were so inanimate that if you don't uphold that law, boy, I'll tell you what, man, you can't be right with God. Let me help you. None of them could be right with God because Jesus hadn't died yet. How could they have been accounted right with God like, Adam, uh, like Abraham? Just putting faith in God to know that this is a temporary sacrifice that we have to offer. But guess what? We already know and believe that our God will send a Messiah and he will be the one that makes us righteous. Not our upholding a law. But the Jews fell for this very deception, thinking the law made them righteous. The law made nobody righteous. If the law could have made you righteous, again, you didn't need Jesus. This is the reason for his statement here in Matthew 9 that I'm quoting to you, verse 13. Go and learn what this means. He's talking here again to, in essence, a bunch of religious people who he's trying to explain to them about the truth of what was really going on with the Old Testament sacrifices. You still with me? Am I boring you? Are you still with, are you on the same page here? So notice he says, again, I'm just quoting it to you, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Huh? You didn't come to call the righteous? Yeah, why? Because there's none righteous. They're all sinners. We've all sinned. Well, who was it that thought they were righteous? The ones that upheld the law. And he's saying, I'm not calling them to repentance. Why? They won't won't even believe I'm the Messiah. (laughs) They won't even put their faith in me to repent. I I can't reveal the... what. And what was this all about, folks? What was it all about? Come on, what was this all about? Relationship with God. To get back in a place where you could know God intimately by being born again and having God's presence to come live in you. I'm so frustrated and saddened by, saddened by Christians that are going much through the same type of rigmarole of, 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 of a type of a lifestyle that their worship is more in what they do and in their service. And I got to go to church and I got to read my Bible. When you start saying, I got to, let me help you. You're not worshiping the God that's of the book. You're not worshiping the God that's of the house. 
It's so easy to fall into this as humans to where we're not understanding that this is an intimate relationship with God that I can walk in every day. Every day. Hallelujah. I don't have to be in church to honor God in a way that adores Him, magnifies Him, and loves Him to the highest degree. What, you just love Him to the highest degree when you're here? The other side of this is, you got to be careful that you don't get caught up again in the lie that it's all about what I do as to whether God accepts me. You're wrong. Because if that was true, again, the Jews could have gotten God to accept them through the upholding of the law. But he could not fully accept people back in the relationship without the sin issue being dealt with. Come on, church. And that was only going to be dealt with with one thing. What was that? The blood of Jesus. The sinless sacrifice of his blood and our faith in that blood. That's it. Come on, that's it. The moment, let me help you. I love this, I love this statement, man. I love this statement. I know she is, but I'm just going to, I'm going to use this as an example to kind of, to help me out. As you understand what I'm talking about, you'll relate this in relationship to what a story that Brother Hagen talked about. He was talking about a guy that he had heard on a radio station. He was driving home late one night from a meeting and he heard, he caught this, uh, this, this uh, program and this guy that was a pastor of a church was having one of the guys that had come off the streets and gotten born again to their mission and now was in the church, serving in the church. He had him get up and kind of share a little bit about his life because the truth is he wound up on the streets not because he was somebody who didn't have anything. Matter of fact, he was very wealthy. Had a beautiful home, had, had nice cars, had a family, all that kind of stuff. He got into a law practice, but guess what? He got off into sin, and he got off into drugs, and through the process of time, it cost him everything. And he wound up with nothing. He's on the streets. Thank God for this mission. <clears throat> And this mission reaching people, uh, long story short, they would do a deal where uh, every single evening you could come get a free meal at the mission, but you couldn't get the meal without hearing the gospel preached. The gospel, you, you didn't get to eat unless you were there for the, for the message. If you didn't come for the message, you didn't get to go back in the area where they fed you. <clears throat> well, he was hungry. So I'm going to go get me some food, but I know I got to go to that message. Well, lo and behold, sitting in the service, God gets a hold of his heart. And he gets born again. Gives his life to Jesus. He became the biggest soul winner in that mission of everybody that ever been there. So this pastor has him get up at, on a Sunday morning. He said, not like into major details, of course, you know, because the kid's here. But could, just share a little bit about what you went through. Some of the things that happened, etc. And how God brought you out of that. So he did. And when he was sitting up there at the time that he was going through all this and talking about all this, man... He all of a sudden kind of began to weep and he began to look down at the congregation and he began to talk about the fact that he felt so bad about all that he had done, about all of his past life, about all of his wrongdoings, the type of things that he had done, relationship, clearly the stuff that he shouldn't have done even as just a normal human being. He got into a lot of bad stuff when he was on the streets, of course. So he's sitting there talking about how grateful he is that Jesus got him born again, how wonderful it is to now know the salvation of the Lord. Stand up, Emily. But as an example, there was a young gal sitting in the congregation. And as he was looking at that young gal, he said, I'd give anything to go back to be like her so that I could once again be pure and be free from all the stuff that I lived out in my life, that I did in my life. And the pastor stopped him. And he said, I got a word for you, sir. He said, "That, that young gal 
as sweet, as innocent as she looks, and as pure as she seems to you. If she ain't born again, she's not near as pure as you are. You're more pure on the inside than she is because she's a sinner on the inside and hasn't been born again. Now, Emily's born. I'm just saying he was using that as an example, right? Because how many know you look at Emily, what do you think? That's a pure little gal right there. You can sit down. Thank you. So you got to understand this is a powerful truth. So what was he trying to show? What was he caught up in? Works. Man, if I could go back, if I, no, 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 you don't understand. You're already as pure as you'll ever be on the inside. What was it based on, folks? Faith. Faith in what Jesus did. Now, what was the purpose of God making you pure on the inside again? To be a true worshiper. And now you can once again do what? Adore God. Magnify Him. And truly love Him above everything else into an intimate relationship with God and let Him love on your back. See, the Jews didn't understand that. They're, they're caught up again trying to get right with God through the law. So Jesus said, you're in Hosea 6, 6, right? Jesus said, go learn what this means because the truth is, I didn't come to call those. Think about that statement. Think about that statement. Calling meaning calling forth. You know, if I said, hey, Merrick, don't have to. If I said, hey, Merrick, come up here, this is what he's talking about. To call means like I'm calling you to come forth. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. But sinners, those who know that I can't get right with God without Jesus. He's the one that makes it possible. He's the one that makes me righteous. He's the one that now opened the door for salvation. I didn't earn this in any way, shape, or form. And now I can have intimate relationship with God. Not because I'm going to earn it. But because God opened the door. Say, God opened the door. <clears throat> so we come to Hosea 6.6. 6. This is a time in which two of the tribes of Israel had been truly, in many ways, very rebellious against God. They'd kind of sort of serve him for a while, and then they'd back off. Then they'd serve him for a while, and then they'd back off. Just hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, and cold. So he's dealing with them. Then he gets to verse 6. He says again, this is the statement Jesus made. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So this is God talking through Hosea the prophet to the children of Israel at the time, relationship more so to the, I think this was the tribe of Judah and Ephraim, if, I got, if I've had this correct. But the point is, he says, I desire mercy. Say, God desires mercy. So think about that in the statement to what he's looking for. What's he looking for? True worshipers. True worshipers. Wouldn't this have something to do with that? Sure would. Because this is what he's looking for. This is what he desires. This is what he's looking for. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. See, God was saying, it's not your burnt offerings that I ever desired. I had to make that as something you had to do to deal with your sinful nature, your sinful acts, the things you would do. So I could cover you in a way through those sacrifices that I could still have relationship with you to a degree. But remember what Jesus said. Time is coming, the hour is coming, and now is. So once Jesus died, guess what he made possible? We could now be a true worshiper. So I want you to get this. A worshiper is not a singer. A worshiper adores God. Do you adore him? A worshiper magnifies God in every aspect of their life every day. Puts him first. A worshiper has a true devotion and love for God. So underline the word mercy. You can make a note of this if you want your Bible or in your notes. But if you look this up, and this is what you got to do to understand this statement. What do you mean God desires mercy? I thought he was the one giving the mercy. 
He did. And therefore, the translation is not really good. If you go back to the Hebrew and you look at the word mercy here, he's desiring this from us. What I desire from you, what does he desire? I want mercy from you, not your sacrifice. He had to have them bring a sacrifice because otherwise he couldn't cover their sin. He's saying, my intent was never to get from you sacrifices. Sacrifices does not open the door for relationship to intimacy because I can't come live in you. I'm still separated from you. I never wanted your sacrifices. He's telling them this because guess what they would do? They would be obedient for a while, then they would stop doing it. Then they would start being obedient again. And when they'd be obedient again, guess why they started being obedient with their sacrifices? They wanted something from God. They're seeking his hands, not his face. That's a lot of Christians today, not, not intentionally, but the Sunday morning only Christian is basically seeking God's hands. And a lot of them don't understand God gave you authority to actually exercise in this earth to go after what he's already provided for you. You don't wait around with God to see is God going to do something for me or not. God already did. Amen. Jesus already obtained your victory. Yes, he did. I, I made this statement the other day on, on social media, did a little graphic because the uh, Holy Spirit speaks to me. I, mean, I write stuff down. <clears throat> and this is a powerful little statement. Guess what? God did not send his son to make us wimps, but warriors. We're not wimps, meaning we just go through life and hope somehow God will help us. Maybe God will help us. You never know. Now, what do warriors do? They go forward in battle. They've been trained. They know how to take, uh, they know how to take back the things that have been taken from them and how to drive the enemy back. If you're not a warrior, why do you have weapons? There's no reason to have armor without being made a warrior. But you have been. You have been. And sadly, most Christians, because they don't have intimacy with God, if you, have, if you have a heart to have intimacy with God and you go to what we call a placebo church, a little, just a Sunday morning church, give you a little kind of feel-good message, but they don't teach you these kind of things, you realize that I don't, I'm not bragging on me, I'm bragging on my spiritual dad. You realize the in-depth teaching you get here that most people will never hear their lifetime? Most people will never know what Hosea 6.6 means. They'll never think, well, Jesus said, go see what this means. Most of them, if you wouldn't ask the average Christian, do you know Jesus said, go figure out what this means? Do you know what it means? Well, no, I've never even read it. Your pastor's never taught it? Not that I remember. Oh my. And if you're only going on Sunday morning, I mean, excuse me, let me back up. If the pastor's only having a Sunday morning service, how much he's going to get into your life in a, in a lifetime? <laughs> how much teaching is he going to be able to get into your life in a lifetime? Let's see if this works for your kids. Your ki- oh, they would love it. Your kids only go to school. Your kids, this is the average church today, folks. Your kids only go to school one hour a week in seven days. All the kids of CFF said that ain't good. You didn't hear me. All the kids of CFF said that ain't good. That was really, really weak, man. I want every kid in school in this church to stand up. Every kid that goes to school stand up. I want you to say this out loud. One hour a week of study ain't good. Little louder, please. One hour a week of study. Shout it. Ain't good. You can sit down. I know your parents will probably scold me for the wrong English, the ain't part. You're in Texas, so ain't's okay in my view. Amen. Well, you think about it. That's what the average Christian gets. Now, think about that hour a week. 
How much of it is in-depth teaching? But see, when people get caught up like, oh, okay, yeah, I got to go to church, you're missing the point. It, it's about relationship with God. Don't worship the church service. Don't worship the chairs. Don't worship the pastor. Don't worship the building. You listening? Don't what? Don't adore above everything else, magnify, and love to the highest degree any of those things. That's reserved for God alone. And if you give that to God, guess what you won't have a problem with? Church, Bible, prayer, all these things help you develop that relationship. So again, Hosea 6.6, I don't want your mercy. Excuse me, I desire your mercy. I don't want your sacrifice. So the word mercy here, if you want to simplify it, really, in its term, I could give you a lot of definitions of what is actually defined there in the original Hebrew language. Here's what it means. You ready? I want your devoted love. I want your devoted love. I want your love devoted to me is another way to say it. I want your love devoted to me. I don't want your sacrifices. What good is it for you to bring your sacrifices, but you don't really love me? What good is it to go to church, but you don't really love God? What good is it to open your Bible, but you don't really love God? See, I I literally saw a show. I was sitting yesterday morning having to get my truck service because it was overdue. And I'm watching this show. And on this show, I, I don't know what show it was. You know, it's just one of those programs on in the, in the waiting area, you know, there. I'm talking to Charlie Sampson the whole time. And this show's going on in the background. And so as I'm talking to him, I'm hearing some of this show. And this gal on this show who's very pretty famous, she was on a big talk show and all this stuff. And, she, you know, she claims now, you know, she's a believer in all this. She said for so many years, she said she believed in God, believed she knew God, walked with God and all that, but she never read her Bible. And she, here's why. Guess why she never read her Bible? It's too hard to read. She said, I, I do it today out of devotion to God, but I do it today out of devotion to God because I realized I needed God in my life. Let me tell you. And so, and then the host, one of the other little gals of the host of the show, who if I told you who she was, you'd know, she then chimed in and she said, it is hard to read. Oh, man, do you know what your pastor wanted to shout at the top of his lungs to get across to that TV? You want to know why it's hard to read? One of two reasons, darling. You're either not born again or you're not in love with God. I'll tell you why it's hard to read, because if you're not born again, it's foolishness. It's sad to think how many of these people claim that they know God and they don't even know the first thing about salvation. When you start talking about getting born again, they're like, huh? What's that? I told you this. I'm going to keep reminding you. Pastor reminded you as well. Don't ever think everybody around you knows what you know. Your pastor didn't know till the age of 27 Jesus died for me. How many Christians I had around me in that time? Before that time? None of them explained to me Jesus until Coy Huffman came along. You still here? So he doesn't desire your sacrifice. What does he want? Your mercy. What's he want? Your devoted love. He want, why does he want your devoted love, church? Last part of the verse. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. See, your burnt offerings don't help you get to know me. The knowledge of God, the phrase here, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God, not burnt offerings. The, word, the, the phrase, the knowledge of God, this is what it says in relationship to the Hebrew language. Here's what it says. I want your devoted love. Not your sacrificial acts. Because of your devoted love, you can get to know me. Amen. And I can get to know you. Yes, yeah. It's not about burnt offerings. Yeah. 
So that's what it says in the Hebrew language. If you have a devoted love to God, guess what you're going to do? You're going to get to know him. He's going to get to know you. Why? You're going to spend time with him. You're going to draw near to him. Any good amens on that? So this is what God is telling us as true worshipers. What must we have? A devoted love for God. A devoted love for God. What if we don't? We're going to talk about that on Sunday. But I want you to go with me, please, to Philippians chapter 3. Remember on Sunday night, we talked about the fact in the corporate setting of the building of the temple. Remember that? When they first got the temple done? In a corporate setting, they all became, with their hearts focused on one, they all became worshipers together, worshiping God as one. Remember that? I was going to go back there tonight, but I don't have time. And if you remember that, guess what God did? God's seeking what? True worshipers. In their setting, all he could look for was a corporate type of worship where all the hearts were set on him. And that temple, when that was actually now dedicated to God, and they're all doing what? They're all lifting their voice as one. What are they lifting their voice to? God. What are they doing? They're worshiping God as one. What happened in that temple? The glory came in. What do you mean? Fellowship. God said, praise God, they opened the door for me. They have given of their hearts to me so I can now come enter in. I can come enter in and I can come and saturate this entire place with my presence. And the priest couldn't even stand up. Why? He found some group of people at that moment that opened the door for him. Let me help you. God opened the door for you. God's just waiting for you to open the door for him. Do you know in the book of Revelation where Jesus talks to the churches and he said, I stand at the door and I do what? How many know he's not talking about sinners? That's written to a church. That's written to believers. Meaning what? Okay, so you're believers, you're born again, but guess what you're not doing? You're not letting me come fellowship with you. I'm standing at the door of your life every day knocking saying, I'd sure like to get in. But your devotion and love is for other things. So you don't open the door. But I'd sure love you to, because I'd sure like to come spend some time with you. Philippians chapter 3. Paul knew this all too well. Because of anybody that worshipped, literally worshipped the law and upholding the law, not the God of, was Paul. What did this cause Paul to do when the New Testament actually came around? Persecute Christians. Because he hated them? Well, in truth... He just felt they were leading people astray from God. Little did he know they're walking far closer with God than he was. But all that deception came about because what? He was worshiping a law. He adored the law more than he adored the God of the law. You still with me? And he brings this up here in Philippians chapter 3. Verse 1, finally my brethren, rejoice in who? Rejoice in who? Rejoice in the Lord. Listen to this. This little side note, by the way. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Now, he's writing the church at Philippi because the church at Philippi, all of a sudden, they're starting to listen again to these Jews who are born again, but are saying, we must still uphold parts of the law, including circumcision, that you cannot truly be cut away from the old man, the old nature, without being circumcised in relationship to the males, acknowledging a covenant with God, that then all the household would walk in a covenant with God. And he simply, he simply tell them here very clearly, he said, for me to tell you this same things over again is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Meaning what? He's already addressed this before. And that's a good word for me and you. Just because I've heard something before doesn't mean I don't need to hear it again. 
And he talks about it. Verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Meaning that those who are telling you who are born again, that are telling you you can't walk in a covenant relationship with God unless all of your males honor circumcision. But that's not true. Jesus made it possible for entering into a covenant with God. Can I get a better amen? But what did the law say? The law said every male child had to be circumcised on the eighth day to show that they had a covenant with God. That was the sign of the covenant of the Old Testament. It was a sign. It didn't create the covenant. It was a sign. Verse 3, for we are, Paul said, talking about us New Testament believers, say this includes me. We are the circumcision. What's circumcision mean? I've already had sin cut away. I'm already right with God. I already have a covenant with God. It ain't based on anything I'm going to do. <laughs> it's based on everything God did. What's the primary par- uh, promise of that covenant? Relationship with God. Relationship with the Father. We're the circumcision, say I am. Who do what? Tell me, who do what? Oh, here's the word worship again. And they worship God in what? In the Spirit. What did Jesus say God's looking for? True worshipers. What do true worshipers do? They worship God in spirit and in truth. He's about to reveal to you part of what that means. We're the circumcision. You worship what? God. Circle it. Highlight it. Underline it. What do we worship? God. What do we worship? God. What do we worship? God. What do we adore? God. What do we magnify? God. Who do we love more than anything else? God. God. Not the law. No. Not service. No. Come on. Not a building. No. No. What do we worship? God. What is God? He's a spirit. Remember back there in the book of John where Jesus was talking about this with the woman? He said clearly the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth. God is spirit. Therefore, if you're going to worship God, you're going to do what? You're going to worship the spirit of God. You're going to worship God. It's really simple and we complicate it. Notice again, we are the circumcision to worship God in the spirit. Why? Because he's a spirit. Notice, and we rejoice in what? Christ Jesus. Why? He made it possible. We rejoice in Jesus Christ of Nazareth because he made it possible for us to do what? He made it possible for us to adore God once again. He made it possible for us to magnify and love our God to the highest degree. If it wouldn't have been for him, it couldn't have happened. We rejoice in Christ Jesus and we have what? No confidence in the flesh. I'm going to read through these verses about to quit and I'll have to come back to this Sunday. We have those who truly understand what it means to be a true worshiper. There is no confidence in your flesh, meaning what what you do. You're not putting confidence in what you do to have relationship with God. The only reason you can have relationship with God is because of what Jesus did, not because of what you have or haven't done. Well, God must be mad at me. He must have turned his back on me. God will never turn his back on you. God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. Thus saith the New Testament book of Hebrews. It ain't God turning his back on us. It's us turning our back on God. And that doesn't mean necessarily getting into sin, although that would be included. I'm just talking about the doors open to fellowship. Are we walking through it or are we turning around and going the other way? 
What made it possible for me to walk through that door of fellowship? The blood of Jesus did. Your flesh had nothing to do with it. Your efforts had nothing to do with it. Come on, everybody in this room that's been born again any length of time knows this. Could you have ever saved yourself? Then how in the world do you think now anything to do with your relationship with God has to do with what you do? Your accomplishments. Well, let me tell you how much time I spend in prayer. You're already caught up in the worship of prayer, not the God of the prayer. When it's about how much time you've prayed and how much hours you've read the Bible, all these things, that's what the Jews said. That's what the Jews talked about. Their service. Their acts of service. Are you saying we don't serve God, Pastor? What have I told you in two services previous? Where does service come from? What you worship. Guess what? You're going to serve what you worship. If you learn to worship God, you have no problem serving God. You're, you're serving today what you worship. What you adore, what you magnify and love to the highest degree, that's what you serve. See, when we put serving before worship, as I have, and even in some of my ways of teaching, we put worship before, excuse me, we put serving before worship, guess what it's going to become to us? A bondage. Guess what we're going to worship? The serving. Not the God whom we're serving. This was Paul. This was the Apostle Paul. He thought everything he was doing to have these, what now we know, clearly he understood at the time, these Christ followers who he didn't believe was the Messiah like the Jews. He thought he was doing God a favor, dragging these people into town, having them killed and stoned. You know what's so incredible about God? Imagine how amazing it is that God would take a guy who was literally killing Christians and still reach out to him knowing his heart and still let him be a part of the body of Christ and become one of the top preachers in the body of Christ. One of the most powerful, uh, powerful voices under the New Testament. Don't tell me God can't turn your life around. Well, how did God turn Paul's life around? I'll tell you how. He learned this ain't about what I do. <laughs> He's about to tell you. It's about my faith in Jesus. That's it. Are you still with me? So, who are the true worshipers? They worship God in what? Spirit. They rejoice in Christ Jesus and they have what? No confidence in the flesh. This ain't about what I do. It's about what he did. Verse 4. Notice this. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. In other words, if you want to talk about somebody who has some confidence in the flesh, let me tell you a little bit about my background. If anyone, he says in verse 4, else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, hey, let me just talk about me for a minute. I'm more so. What was he talking about here again in, in uh, Philippians chapter 3? You got all these Jews coming in thinking there's somebody big and telling you how oh, we worship God and we do all these things for God. And, and, da, 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 da. and by the way, y'all got to still circumcise your kids on the eighth day. He's saying, you thinking these guys really did a great job of upholding the law? Let me tell you about me. Watch this. I'm more so, verse 5, circumcised the eighth day as required in the law. I was circumcised the eighth day, verse 5, of the stock of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's not bragging on himself. He likes nothing about this. Because you're about to see, as most of you know in the reading of it, guess what he's going to do? He's going to say it was all for nothing. Not upholding what he was required to uphold to be able to cover his sin. He was not worshiping the God, though, who gave him these things to cover his sin. He was worshiping what God told him to do. You listening? Yes. A Hebrew of the Hebrews and concerning the law, 
what was required of the Old Testament law? A Pharisee, meaning what? Of the strictest sect of the people of the day to uphold all of what the law required. Not a little of it. Every little detail. By the way, more than just what God gave them. Because the Jews had a 200 plus of their own laws to it. Verse 6, concerning zeal. By the way, that's a powerful little truth. Let me just back up and run down that little side trail for a minute. Understand that anything we do to still think somehow, we have to show God that we're worthy of his love or show God that we're worthy of his promises or show God that somehow we're worthy. Well, Lord, I know I've done wrong and I know you don't deserve to bless me. Uh, I, I know I don't deserve for you to bless me. You never did, nor will you. You don't deserve it because of what you did. He didn't give you salvation because you deserved it. He gave you salvation because you cried out to him and believed in faith that he would give it to you. And anytime we start going in relationship to our walk with God, we start going back to this, it's what I do. You're not worshiping the God of what you're trying to do. You're worshiping what you're trying to do. You're still here. I don't mean intentionally, because Paul certainly didn't do so. You listening? Six, concerning zeal, being zealous, persecuting the church. I had so much zeal for God, I thought I was doing God a favor. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, the, the, the law doesn't make you righteous. But they thought it did. Righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, listen, listen, these I have counted loss for who? Christ. Why? Why did he count them lost for Christ? He's the door. He's the door to fellowship. I can't get into the Father without walking through the door. Jesus is the door. Come on, I've taught you this in John 10. If you go to John 10 verses 1 through 9, everybody, actually many teachers still refer to, I was a great teacher the other day, and it saddened me that he was referring to Jesus in there in those first nine verses as the shepherd that we follow, but he's not. He said, I'm the gate. I'm the door by which you get into the body of Christ and which the true shepherds I've anointed come in and call out the flock and lead them out to pasture to feed them. He's the door. How do you get into fellowship with God? You got to come through the door. Who's the door? Jesus is the door. Paul found that out. Paul found out that it's through Christ I walk through this door of fellowship with the Father. It's through Christ I enter into this door of right standing with God. Not what I've done. Verse 8. Yet indeed I also count what? All things. So we're beyond the law now. If you don't know about Paul, how many know in Romans 7, Paul came to the revelation of sin through one of the commandments. Said that I died. Right? What was the revelation of sin that got a hold of Paul's uh, actual heart? Covetousness. He tells you. He was a coveter. He liked stuff. He liked things. A lot of Pharisees did. They wanted the, be the best seats in the synagogue. They wanted all the, all the attention of all the people around. Man, imagine, think about, to them, they're trying to get all of this uh, approval of people and looking like they're somebody big. When they're walking down the streets heading that synagogue, they're wanting everybody to look at them. They want their attention to say, man, all the people, boy, I wish I could be like them. And Paul said, I've counted all things for loss. I could care less if anybody thinks I'm somebody big or not. You listening? So he says in verse 8, I also count all things lost. What for? What for? For the excellence of the knowledge 
of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may do what? Gain Christ. He didn't mean I took a vow of poverty, I gave everything up. No, he said, I realize that I'm not going to put my affection, my adoration, I am not going to put my love, my devotion into anything but one thing, God. That's my devotion. That's my love. Anything else is considered refuge or dregs. In essence, basically what they would call the pile of poop from the horses and the cows. That's his statement, not mine. But it's true. But again, I got to quit. But look at this, verse 8. I indeed also count what? How many? How many? How many? So what would those all things be to us? What you own. What you do. When you base your work on what you do. Your value. How worthy you are. How worthy you feel based on what you do. Whether you failed or not. Guess what you're doing? You're actually putting your adoration in the wrong thing. You're putting it in you. You're putting in your actions what you do to try to feel worthy enough before others are worthy enough to God. You're never going to make it. Which, by the way, you need to wake up and realize you're already there. Just like he told that guy in that mission, talking about that young gal. He said, if she ain't born again, you're more pure, you're more holy, you're more clean than she is because of the blood of Jesus. I count all things lost. Listen to this. Again, this is not a real good translation in relationship to these words here. I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Listen to that statement. The excellence of the knowledge of Christ. So I've told you this before. What does the word excellent mean here? The infinite value. I wish they'd have translated it that way. <clears throat> what was Paul after? There's no higher value in life than what? Knowing Christ. There's no higher value. No higher value. No seat in a synagogue. Come on, no accolades of people. No higher. There's, no, there's nothing of more infinite worth in life than just knowing God. And that's what a true worshiper is all about. I just want to know him. I just want to know him. You know, when I started walking with God, I so wanted to know God. Didn't know I could. When I got born again, had such a hunger to know God. Nobody told me, now listen, you really ought to listen to teaching all day long in that rock truck of yours. Nope. Nobody told me, when you get home, you should record what you can on television of good teaching and come home and watch it every night when you get home. Nobody told me that. Amen. Nobody said I needed to do that. But boy, did I want to. Because yes. like Paul, I found out I could know God. And I learned enough from great men of God before me to know how you're going to know God through his word. He is the word. I didn't do it because I served the programs. I didn't serve the Bible. I didn't serve the, the sermons. I was wanting to get to know the God of the sermons. I wanted to get to know the God of the teacher. The teacher that was teaching about my God. I wanted to get to know that God. And I found people that knew him. And I listened to him because I knew if you know him, you can help me know him. Once I found out I could, it's the whole reason I got born again. I told you my testimony. When I found out I could know God, when Coy Huffman looked at me <clears throat> in that Sirester's house on that couch in Phoenix, Arizona, had a Bible study, said, how'd you like to know God? I said, excuse me? How'd you like to know God? What do you mean by that? <laughs> See, to us, it's like, well, you should have known. No, I'm a sinner. I have no idea what, what you mean by the phrase knowing God, let alone can I really know him? Exactly. Really? 
I can know God? Yeah, sure you can. You're kidding, right? No. Well, how do you do that? Do you know why Jesus came? No, sir. Do you know about Jesus? Not really. I've heard his name. Heard a lot about the Mother Mary, the Catholic Church. I hadn't heard much about Jesus. I don't know. I don't. I, and they taught in Latin in the Catholic Church my grandma went to. The only thing I really knew of Jesus was what I would hear my grandma talking about when I would walk by her bedroom. If you went and stayed with grandma's house, when, which I did oftentimes on weekends because they lived down the street, you had to go to church with grandma the next day. Yes. But my, my grandma on Saturday night, I, I could imagine how much different Christians would be if they devoted themselves to this. My grandma on Saturday nights before she went to church on Sunday was on her knees at her bedside talking to God before she went to church on Sunday. She didn't wait to get to church. And a lot of times she'd leave that door cracked and my bedroom was right across the hall from theirs, from my grandma and grandpa's. Grandpa would be out finishing a cup of coffee and I'd go walking back to bed to go to bed early because it told me to get to bed. And my grandma's on her knees on her bed with her Bible open and she's talking to this man named Jesus. I'm so glad my grandma knew him. At the age of six, he appeared at the foot of her bed. She's sitting there lying. There's a little six-year-old girl in bed, and this light that had a side window in her room, this light comes down. Am I boring you? This light comes down, hits the floor, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears to her. Just stands there and smiles at her. And then left the room. I believe my grandma got born again that day. My grandma operated in words of wisdom, words of knowledge, had no idea what she had. None at all. And interesting, your pastor primarily operates in the same two gifts. But after that day, they just thought she was a kid that had a sixth sense about her. I mean, stuff like the phone and ring. I was in California one time when it happened. And at that time, she's actually living with my aunt in California and their kids because my grandpa passed away. And in the house, the phone rings. And we're all sitting around there playing. And I hear my grandma say, that's Uncle so-and-so. And so-and-so's passed away. She didn't know that. We didn't have cell phones. They're not texting each other all the time. And talked to him in years. My aunt goes and picks up the phone. You should have saw the look on her face as she's listening to what they're talking about. And she's looking at my grandma. And she said, okay, thank you. And she put the phone down. She said, it was exactly what you said. You listening? My grandma knew Jesus. To the best of her ability, she knew Jesus. In some ways, far better than a lot of charismaniacs I know. You know why? She talked to him. She didn't base it on what she had done. Something in relationship to her, she knew. This is all about what Jesus has done for me. And it's for the infinite value. I have a question for you tonight. I got to close. I got to close. I have a question for you tonight. Are you willing to count all things lost, like Paul, for the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus and walking through that door to the Father and have an intimate relationship with Him? Let me help you. You're going to have to count all things as lost. Does that mean I ditch everything I got? No, no, no. No. What does it mean? I don't put anything. Before my God, my relationship with God, my love for him, my devotion for him. Let me close in reading this. I'm going to come back to it on Sunday. In uh, Philippians 3, a little further down, because this is powerful, man. In verse 10 in the Amplified, I encourage you to go check it out if you've got an Amplified Bible. Philippians 3, chapter 10. For my determined purpose, Paul said. Determined purpose. My determined purpose is that I may know him. That I may progressively, 
Progressively means you're getting closer all the time. That I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him. Perceiving and recognizing and understanding, listen to this, the wonders of his person. More strongly and more clearly. That I may in that same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, which, exerts it, which it exerts over believers. Meaning what? We should, we're not powerless Christians. We should see it working in our lives. You listening? And that, I, and that I may so share in his sufferings as to be continually transformed in spirit. Worship God in what? In spirit. That I may be transformed in spirit into his likeness, even to his death, in the hope that if possible I may attain to the spiritual and moral resurrection that lifts me out from among the dead, even while in my body. Can I explain to you what he just said? To live the kind of life Jesus lived. To do the kind of things Jesus did. Any good amens on that? We can know him. We can know him. And he wants us to. So in closing, what is worshiping God in the spirit, Pastor? Come help me, Merrick. Come on. Hurry quick, man. Because we're already over time. So let's say Merrick represents... Come here, Maverick. Let's say Merrick represents God. What is God? What is God? He's a spirit. So let's say Merrick represents everything of what is in relationship to me, the old nature, right? The old Adamic fallen nature that wants all the stuff of the world. This, my spirit, my spirit wants, are you messing with me? I'm going to watch the video back. You're going to get in trouble if you're messing with me. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking, man. So this represents God who is what? What is God? Spirit. Spirit. Anything else is not God, which is not what? Spirit. Spirit, right? It would be of some natural thing in relationship to this earth in which we live or other people, whatever, correct? To worship God in spirit means, guess what? I adore, magnify, and love to the highest degree God. Why? He's a spirit. Guess what? I don't adore, magnify, and love to the highest degree. Everything that's not God, which is not spirit. God is spirit. Those who adore, magnify, and love him to the highest degree must do so in spirit. Meaning what? You got to love him. He's a spirit. He's not your car. Not your home. Not your clothes. Come on. He's a spirit. And if I worship God in spirit, what does that mean? He's the one I adore. He's the one that I magnify. He's the one above everything else. That I love to the highest degree. That's worshiping God in spirit. Paul got it. Paul got it. Everything else that I've ever done in my own accolades, my own ability, I count as loss to know my God. Because the only way I'm going to get to know my God is not through all those things I did, but through what Jesus did for me. Amen? Give him a good hand. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Stand your feet. We pray that you are blessed by the message Pastor Baker shared with you today. For more spiritual resources that can help you in your walk with God, or to invite Pastor Baker as a guest speaker, just go to our website at cffchurch.com. You will find additional teachings by video, 
audio, and printed resources that will be a blessing to you. May God's very best be yours.